the night. Matt Laswick, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big old list, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Brother Will, how's it going tonight? Got a lot on my mind, Brother Matt, and not in the way that it's usually a bit, right? So not to bring down the energy, not to bring down the the vibe but we got a, got a couple of big things to talk about this week and let's I'll, I'll throw it to you for the first one we are recording this on 4th of may may the 4th be with us and we've just lost a legend and i'll, I'll let you talk about it matt yeah a few days ago neil adams passed we've talked about adams on this podcast before we've done the first racial ghoul story we've done the joker's five-way revenge we've done half an evil We've done The Secret of the Waiting Graves. Uh, there's still a couple left that we ha- haven't really touched on of his early classic work, uh, very specifically The Night of the Reaper, which is a tremendous tale. Uh, we haven't done his later work where he writes it as well, which is not as good, but he was a legend. I wrote a little bit of the Comics XF newsletter piece this week curated by friend of the show dan grote and as i wrote there at the end uh, without neil adams there would have been no dark knight returns no batman 89 no batman the animated series the streets of gotham are a little quieter tonight for his passing where you know you're going to hear this a month out and the wound will not be as fresh but right now we're in a place of great sadness for the passing of a legend who was also a firm believer in creators' rights, which is something we support here as well. One of the great proponents of creators' rights. Absolutely. And the other thing that's pressing on my mind, and not to get off topic or get political here, but you know, we just had the leak of one of the most disastrous Supreme Court opinions in our lifetime. And that's, it's obviously subject to change. And as a guy who teaches the law, I know the any inner workings of the Supreme Court is just as good as anybody else out there on Twitter. So the votes could change, the opinion could change, blah, 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 blah. But as it stands, there are five votes to, if you read Alito's would-be opinion, completely overturned Roe versus Wade. And they had the votes for this as soon as Barrett was confirmed. And this was coming in some form or fashion, but I have not read the entire opinion, but the, the excerpts that I've caught are just fucking frightening. Not for just for women's rights, but for every other major right of the 20th century the right to conception, the, the right to marry the person you love. And I just feel like we're going into a dark time. And as somebody who teaches Supreme Court cases and who believes in law and the courts for a force of good, it is shaking to see them used as a force to take away rights and to basically imprison people who give birth into their own bodies and to rob them of choice. So let's have a fucking show, Matt. Uh- well, since we're in the downer portion here, I was going to start our first story with both a content warning and a little something else. So I'm going to just stick it right here at this point, because why not? At least our first story especially deals with suicidal ideation and domestic abuse in places. So if that is a trigger for you, once we start that section, you're going to probably want to jump forward about 20 minutes. More than that, while you will be hearing this on June 2nd, 
As Will said, we're recording this on May 4th. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. We as an American culture do not tend to treat mental health with the same, whatever you want to call it, as physical health. And that's a shame. I'm someone who has struggled with obsessive compulsive disorder and intense anxiety, both internal and social, for the majority of my life. If I hadn't gone through therapy, I would be a complete basket case versus just the, you know, partial basket case that I am every day of my life. And I have many people to thank for supporting me. And we all need that. I will put in the episode notes for this episode links and information for the National Suicide Prevention Hotline and some other mental health resources. And yes, we are just podcasters. To many of you, we are just voices that you hear once a week. But you all know we are at Bat Chat Comics on Twitter. I believe our DMs are open. I will double check that. If any of you out there in listener land ever need anyone to talk to, if you're ever feeling like there's no one there, reach out. I regularly check that Twitter and I will be a voice to tell you that there's, you know, something to live for as rough as it is. And I will listen because sometimes you just need a voice in the dark. But yeah, now onto some comic books. I know we like to, I'll, I'll continue on that thing for one more minute. Please will. We like to fuck around and we like to have a good time here, but I know at least a few people have reached out uh, to us after our, our talk about whatever happened to the Cape Crusader. Um, so I know that our, our little chit chats here just can't touch people. And uh, we're going to get into some more stuff tonight. So um, yeah, maybe, maybe this show is just going to have some lower, more somber energy, but uh, such is such is the way of things. And, and I'll follow up with that note on, uh, on mental health. And uh, my family has been quite touched by bipolar disorder. Uh, it was one of the contributing factors in my sister's death. And, as I talked in the immediate aftermath of her death, those are the wounds we can't see. We can't see them as we pass people on the street or we can't see them on our friends, but that doesn't mean that they don't exist. Yeah, I can't agree with you more on that one, Will. And we are here to listen, folks. We are here to talk and we are here to listen. But right now we're going to talk about Batman. Very specifically, this week, Jason Todd Tierbacker, Sam Hopper, has chosen a kindness and not picked a book we will suffer through. Instead, he picked God one. Bless him. Oh, yeah. Uh, instead, he picked one and an episode theme that goes with it that I'm very excited to talk about. The work of the late, great Darwin Cook. This actually comes at a perfect time because our episode with the first Cook story we'll be discussing, the Catwoman episode, will drop tomorrow as we record this. And the final collection of Cook's Parker graphic novels in the oversized what IDW calls martini editions dropped at comic shops today. So it feels like a good day to be talking about the work of Darwin Cook. We're going to start with the story that Sam requested, which is Batman Ego. Batman Ego is a one-shot written, drawn, and colored by Darwin Cook, lettered by John Babcock and edited by Mark Chiarello. Uh, the cover date is August of the year 2000. Still early in his career, after one of the Joker's henchmen takes his own life to avoid punishment for snitching to the Dark Knight, 
Batman faces a long night of the soul where he must confront what he is, what he has become, and whether he can go on. Fuck, man. I mean, I've read this one a couple times, but it's been a few years, and this is the first full comic that Darwin Cook wrote and drew. Oh, fuck me. You... <laughs> yeah! I'm, I'm never going to do anything as good. Yeah, I mean, he he written you know a couple of like short stories before this, but this is the first full length thing that this guy did. And when you just see that, it's like, what the hell kind of talent pulls this right out of thin air to create? an all-time Batman story. Absolutely. And and I'll say this to those of you who haven't already purchased it or perhaps thinking about making a purchase. I got the deluxe and it comes with so many other things. Like, basically all Bat-related stuff. Another story we're going to get to, you know, Lena's big score is in there. His Batman black and white stuff. It is a chonky volume. I would definitely recommend it just because of how how many things it brings there. I will flat out say Darwin Cook is one of my favorite creators of all time. And he passed way too young and he never touched something that he didn't make better for having worked on it. But this this is a somber comic. This is a story of Bruce Wayne. I, he says somewhere in the story that he's been doing this for three years. So we're a little bit probably after that Batman year three period because Robin is mentioned. He's not really in the story, but he is mentioned. And this is still a young enough Batman that when Buster snibs this wheel man for the Joker that Bruce put the screws to, kills himself, and his family, because the Joker knew he was the one who snitched. And when the Joker got out of Arkham next, he was coming for Buster and his family. Bruce isn't sure if he can go on. And so basically, this entire comic is Bruce having a conversation with Batman, with this sort of personified thing that is his fear his darker side and the two of them wrestling with what it means to be Batman and what they can do to coexist. It's not a simple comic. There's a lot to it. And while it is probably not as thoroughly researched psychologically as something like that, like uh, mask from legends of the dark Knight was, which had a psychological consultant, this is in many ways less about psychology and more about spirit, about what we as people are and can be. And Cook draws the hell out of every panel. If oh, this, Jesus. If this were just that story, it would be well-regarded. When you factor in Cook's art, it is fucking brilliant. It's a comic that attempts to do one thing as far as storytelling goes and it does amazingly well right 
the core of the story is exactly what you laid out. It is Batman and Bruce having this this dialogue, and it manifests as fear, as doubt, as self-loathing, as imposter syndrome. It is every nasty thought you've ever had about yourself boiled into 30 pages, and it's tough. And Bruce is very human if your batman is that perfect cold machine batman this is not a book you're going to enjoy because here he is truly struggling at the end when he is railing at the entity that i dubbed the fear in my notes because it says at one point that it is his fear He asks it, is this my life? And in the end, he comes to terms with this, that he agrees to take the responsibility that the fear tells him that this is what he is and what it has to be to protect others so they can live the lives he couldn't. And Bruce's reply is that the truth hurts, but that's the truth. That is Bruce's truth. And we get a a sequence in here with Bruce and Thomas Wayne. And, you know, it's interesting. In my head, I never think about how many stories the Waynes actually factor into. Not, you know, Thomas Wayne of Flashpoint or whatever, but how many stories have real flashbacks and stuff with the Waynes. And I never think there are that many, but as we've seen in recent episodes, there are more than I think between whatever happened to the Caped Crusader and To Kill a Legend and Untold Legend of the Batman. Oh, Death and the Maidens. This has this whole scene where it's Christmas and Bruce goes with Thomas for a house call because Thomas promised he wouldn't go into work, but there's a patient who is dying and Bruce sort of sneaks into the house and he watches his father try to save this man and fail. And you see this moment between Bruce and Thomas in the car. And it reminds me of that thing from whatever happened to the Cape Crusader about you get eight years of perfect happiness because Thomas Wayne here is a good man. Thomas Wayne talks to his son kindly about death and about how we will all pass, but We won't for a long time, which, of course, is not true, because shortly thereafter, Thomas will die with Martha and it has the pearls. You see Martha get the pearls that Christmas, but the use of them in the one page that features the death of the Waynes is so comparatively subtle to the usual beating you over the head with the pearls that Darwin Cook can make me even not roll my eyes at the fucking pearls. The fucking pearls. So I'll, I'll tell you the moment that that touched me the most, and this was this was almost poetic. This is right after the scene with the pearls, and this is the voice of fear. From that moment on, we were constant companions. I watched as you struggled to carry on to find a reason for what had happened when no reason could be found. I drove you to create a reason to discover a purpose in a world gone mad 
and it struck me as really authentic um, in how to deal with grief. And it was one of the things that really hit me as my mother struggled to deal with my sister's death. My sister was in with some bad people and uh, she was marched out to the woods and shot and left to die. And my mother struggled with so long just asking the question of why, why, why did they do it? Why, why did that happen? And there is no answer. But grief compels you to ask the question to, as fear says here, create a reason just so you can go on. And that, that really struck me. And to think that this is for all the shit we give artists uh, who try to take up the pen, this was stellar artwork and writing that is every bit as good. It's not a lighter scene, but it's not as, you know, emotionally resonant, but we get to see the origin of the Joker here. We get to see the the run through uh, Ace Chemicals and it's stunningly drawn because Cook uses a lot of nine panel grids, a lot of large, but this is done in, I should have left the page up, it's something like a 16 panel grid. It's a ton of small panels that give you that intense sense of motion because your eyes are moving so quickly across all of these little panels. And I mean, the two villains who get sort of a spotlight here are the Joker and Two-Face. And the, the Joker is the fear telling Bruce that, well, we created him and playing up a lot of the same things that Superman said in Injustice, that on some level, Bruce needs and desires the Joker to give him reason. Again, and we don't have the courage to kill him. Right. And meanwhile, Two-Face is used in the, when the fear wants Bruce. It basically offers to give Bruce plausible deniability. It basically offers to let Bruce willingly dissociate so he and Batman can exist as two separate entities, which Bruce refuses because it's not what he's going to do because it would give the fear, which would happily kill free reign. And of course, this all starts with the Joker as well. The Joker and Buster and what Bruce was willing to do to stop the Joker. And he feels guilty when he gets back to the Batcave after Buster kills himself. He breaks down. He cries. He grieves a criminal. And that is right. That is how Batman is. I think we were talking in that the Catwoman episode, since I just finished editing it, about how Selina has a line in there about how Bruce wouldn't necessarily care about the dead sex workers because they were criminals and they chose their path. And no, I don't agree with that. And this Batman clearly doesn't either. This is a Batman who cares about the lives of everyone, regardless of what they've done and who they are. No one deserves to die. One more thing that really struck me in reading this is both the reveal of fear as as Batman you know gets back to the cave, but also just what a stunning title page in that moment. Like, you know, ego, a psychotic slide into the heart of darkness, right? It lays out the premise and the terms and what you're going to get over the next 35 pages after that. I mean, I'll, I'll say it again, like, what just a stunning package of artwork and design and conception 
and one man's vision and ability to to use comics as a medium to tell stories yeah i made the mistake of reading this on public transportation while taking a train into philadelphia on monday and i was sitting there at a couple of points sort of biting my lower lip because like not gonna cry on the train <laughs> not gonna cry on the train i'm not gonna be that. a weirdo on the train I, i've done that before when reading things not gonna do it again because if you can't tell who the crazy person on the train is guess what you're the crazy it's person you. on the train uh, one little fun note for those of you out there who are deeply entrenched in the lore of Batman the Animated Series. There's a line at the beginning that Buster says about how someone named Chucky Saul told him that the Joker knew he was the one who ratted him out. Chucky Saul is one of the mobster figures who are murdered in Batman Mask of the Phantasm. So that's just a fun mm. little nod to Mask of the Phantasm because Cook, before he became this comic book icon he worked for dc animation he designed the uh opening sequence for batman beyond and was a storyboard artist for a few episodes of the new batman adventures and superman the animated series you could have told me that he was the 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 creative vision behind the look of uh the animated series and i would have believed you like this this is that that classic batman animated series just visual yeah i mean he clearly comes from that school and the work of bruce tim and those guys clearly deeply impacted cook's work but he he takes it to a whole other level with the things he does and we've been focusing on other batman animated or live action or whatever work for our bonus episodes for our Patreon backers. I think at some point we might do a month that is not Batman stuff, but is just me and Will reading some non-Batman Darwin Cook and us talking about that as a bonus episode. Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd be up for that. This month for those, actually last month, because this is coming out June 2nd, but a few days before this drops, We'll be dropping the Patreon bonus episode for May, which will be the animated adaptation of a story we will be doing later on tonight. Every page of this, every panel feels like it could be taken out and made its own poster. And the fact that Cook not only wrote, drew, ink, he colored this. For the other books tonight, he'll work with... Dave Stewart as his colorist and Dave Stewart is just a schmo Dave Stewart. (laughs) Yeah. Just some guy, you know, not at all known for, you know, the, the colors on Hellboy and other things, but the fact that this, the, the colors on this stand up next to Dave Stewart's colors on the other books is a testament to what cook could do regardless. You got anything else? Well, I'm done, so that means it's time to put Batman Ego on the big board. All right, so right now, we currently have 108 stories on our big list. Story number one is Batman Year One from Batman Volume One, numbers 404 to 407. Number 25 is No Law and a New Order, the first arc 
of the epic No Man's Land story. Number 50 is Trust from Detective Comics, Volume 1, numbers 833 to 834, where Batman and Zatanna team up to fight the Joker. And sexy number 69 is Riddler in the Dark from Legends of the Dark Knight, Volume 2. And number 75 is Her Sister's Keeper, the original Catwoman miniseries. And all the way down to the bottom is White Knight. Uh, so we're going right up near the top. Oh, it's going to be going to be tough tonight. Really, really tough. Yeah. Um, everything oh. is going to be in the top half. Yes. This one, uh, this one is it. Honestly, I feel like this is a top 10 book. All right. So if we do top 10, we got to say it's better than at least Dark Victory, which is at 10. And I'm willing to say that. Um, yeah. I'm willing to say uh, better than Batman Black and White Volume 1 at 8. I agree. I'm wrestling with whether or not it cracks the top five. Ooh. I think as much as I love some of these days at number six, I think this is as emotionally resonant as some of these days, which I mean does have that wonderful Bruce and Selena stuff at the end, but this is foundational to who Batman can be this book and what he means to Bruce Wayne. Does it beat red rain at five? Red rain is there because it is just such an amazing good time. Yes. And outside of that, outside of, you know, some really good art, it just, it's not critical. It's no. very important. And it goes on to inspire some, some really solid books after that. But you could get a good sense of Batman. You could get a good feel of the character and not have read Red Rain. I don't know that anything can be essential, but man, Ego really does get at what Batman is. And then, then we have Long Halloween, which remains one of my favorite Batman stories of all time. But those last three pages are... Uh, are not, not since Psycho has any master creator failed to land the plane uh, as, as they did in Long Halloween. Yeah, and again, just like Psycho, it's the very last moment. It's great up until the very end. And then that last tiny little bit, it's just like flop. It's like the landing gear just drop out of the plane after touchdown. <laughs> and it just drags the belly along. Nobody really gets hurt, but it's just like they're going to have to get those funky ramps. You're going to have to slide down because you can't just get off the plane. No, of course not. Well, we just watched Die Hard too. You know, you get the inflatable ramps. And as much as I love cold days, I think I love it more because it's, 11 angry people in Batman. And because again, it does have those, those resonant emotional beats, but still, I think we might be the only guys who really remember it and enjoy it. I think this is number three. Yeah. I like that. It's hard to pick between this and whatever happened to the Cape Crusader, but I think Gaiman and Cooper touch something in that, that hits as hard as this. But it's a more expansive story. But I think this is is a is number three with a bullet. I will agree. Next up is Crime Convention. This is the Batman the Spirit one shot, written by Jeff Loeb with pencils by Darwin Cook, inks by Jay Bone, colors by Dave Stewart, letters by Comicraft, 
edited by Mark Chiarello and Tom Palmer Jr., with a cover date of January 2007. As the criminals of Gotham City and Central City gather for a meeting in Hawaii to scheme against the convention of high-ranking police at the same resort, the heroes of the two cities, Batman and the Spirit, head to paradise to stop whatever the crooks have planned. First, just as our standard disclaimer, Jeff Loeb has not gotten any better in the (laughs) intervening time since we last talked about him. As far as we know, at least, still a racist. Cook was an avowed fan of Will Eisner and the Spirit. Cook did the first year of DC's Spirit ongoing that followed this book. It's Darwin Cook work. It's gorgeous. And yes, there are problematic elements in the spirit and about Eisner as well when it comes to the depiction of characters of color in those early spirit stories. Not going to sugarcoat that, but I assume Loeb went out of his way to avoid using the unfortunate Ebony White and Cook attempted... Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, Don't look up Will Eisner's Ebony White Cook tried to make the character not an awful stereotype to whatever effect that he could in the ongoing. But uh, yeah, as we did a little bit of pre-show, I think, Will, you hit the uh, nail on the head when you described it. How did you describe this story? Uh, I believe I called it a pretty trifle, Matt. Yeah, this is Again, this is Darwin Cook. This is a creator at the zenith of his powers. But this is clearly there for entertainment. This is a Jeff Loeb comic. Loeb does what Loeb likes to do, which is let me get as many characters as I possibly can and cram them into one big story. Because I like the spirit. I like Batman. So. I am going to use as many characters as I possibly can and be like, hey, this is, you know, really packed in this story. That doesn't make it bad. It's not a bad comic. So uh, let me say this. For the benefit of our number one super fan out there, Alexander, and totally not for me, totally not for me, because I'm an expert. I have read tons and tons and tons and tons about the spirit and i know all about it so this is for alexander and definitely not for me explain the spirit and his characters sure the spirit was created by will eisner legendary creator of comics in uh, 1940 as opposed to your standard comic book the spirit was a newspaper insert not a strip but it was these x number of page inserts that told a a full spirit story the spirit was a detective you know your sort of typical square-jawed detective i believe he might have been police initially who nearly died and you know people thought he died and he was interred but it turned out he didn't actually die so he decided well if everybody believes i'm which is why his lair is under the cemetery okay that makes sense now yep But I already knew that, of course. Yes. So he dons a domino mask and teams up with his old friend, police commissioner Dolan, and he becomes a vigilante in Central City, not the same Central City that The Flash lives in. The Spirit comics are known for a 
tremendous quantity of femme fatales, most notably uh, Pagel, or Pagel, I'm not entirely sure how her name is pronounced, who we do see in here. Very much femme fataling. Yeah. Another one, Sand Seraph, who was a childhood friend of the spirit. Those were his two biggest love interests, along with Ellen Dolan, the quote unquote good girl, who was the, the commissioner's daughter. These were all very simple, 16-page, often mysteries. But Eisner did a lot of experimentation with style and form and using the Spirit logo as part of his panels. And he did lots of stories that were about people around the Spirit. Not necessarily supporting it, but, you know, how the Spirit would affect the lives of everyday citizens and criminals, you'd get things that are akin to something like the episode of Batman, the animated series, Joker's favor. That's about the guy that the Joker is tormenting or the episode POV. That is an episode told from the perspectives of Harvey Bullock, Renee Montoya, and another cop. Some of the most famous spirits are these stories that really the spirit is the inciting incident and not the main character. And his arch nemesis is the octopus. Bill we and, never see. Yes. And that's the octopus thing. You never see the octopus's face. He's just this guy who's in shadow, who has these purple gloves. You always know it's the octopus because of the purple glove. I believe that the other two villains you see here, Carrion and the Cossack, were recurring villains, but no villain in the spirit ever really stuck in my head outside of the octopus. I haven't read as much spirit as I probably would like to. When DC had the reprint rights, they reprinted the entire run in fairly expensive hardcovers, like $50 a pop, which was a bit rich for my blood when I was, you know, a college student. But I got volume one and I got two cheaper, you know, trades, one that was a best of and one that was a focus on the various femme fatales. And I've read those and I've read a ton of other Eisner. Again, Eisner is, is a great, Eisner is one of the greats of the golden age. Sounds like the kind of guy you'd name awards after. Yeah. You'd think, right. That, that discussion of the spirit ate up a good chunk of this, which is good because there isn't a ton in this story. See Alexander, you helped tonight. Yes. It's a fun little trifle i mean your your basic concept is okay the octopus has organized this meeting of the criminals of central city and gotham city in hawaii all the arkham set goes down and a lot of the designs are very contemporary to that you know 40s and 50s period you don't get a ton of characters who don't look like that and the gotham villains who don't come from that period are still sort of stylized in that way i mean you get the ventriloquist and scarface who look like they could fit out of that period and you get a really reptilian killer croc and harley but they don't feel out of place in this sort of nebulous no time it has the same vibe as batman the animated series where you don't quite have a particular time where this takes place uh, meanwhile, you get some femme fataling with Poison Ivy putting the whammy on Dolan and Pagel seducing Jim Gordon just because it's a spirit story. And so there's a femme fatale involved because at least one femme fatale involved. And the very end becomes this almost comedy of manners with everybody switching identities at some point or another, which is cute. 
but you know, it's there. The, the reason to read this story is because Cook, again, draws the living hell out of it. Got some pretty pictures. Oh, does it ever. You get, you know, your typical superhero misunderstanding between Batman and the spirit the first time they meet. You get a beautiful masquerade sequence, a cute little cameo by Superman at the end. But there's just, there's not, there's not a lot here. Yeah, there's not much there there. And, Which and, is fine, right? Yeah. Not everything has to be Batman ego, thank God. Right. Or the next story we're going to be discussing, which is another one that it's like, there's a lot of material coming up. And one fun little note I will point out at the beginning, and it's always interesting. Sound effects are one of these things that I'm never sure if the letterer or the artist are the ones that put in sound effects. But I feel like when they're diegetic, it's usually the artist who puts them in. And at the beginning, as the spirit is running across some rooftops, something happens and he's shot out and he starts to fall and this big sign breaks and the sound effect is Sprang, which is, of course, a reference to Dick Sprang, who is legendary for those big prop things on the roofs of gotham oh he also gets a mention with the spraying coffee yes yes i have to imagine cook was a fan you'll see in our next story there's a panel at the very end that is a direct lift of a sprang that that cook is obviously homaging a sprang at the very end i can feel that sort of vibe in cook's art because sprang was a larger than life artist you know you go from Jerry Robinson, who was the initial sort of best ghost that Bob Kane used, whose stuff was much darker and much more grounded to those giant props and things of Dick Sprang. And it's it's night and day and how anybody thought I don't think anybody really thought that Bob Kane was drawing all these things. I don't think anybody many people were thinking about who was drawing these comics back in the day. But it's so obvious that it was different ghosts. These guys weren't disguising their styles. I do also like that when both Batman and the spirit, their femme fatales switch and Pajel attempts to lure Batman into a trap and Catwoman attempts to lure the spirit into a trap. Batman absolutely does not buy it. And the spirit runs head fucking first right into the trap. I'll, I'll be there. Yeah, exactly. And and meanwhile, Batman is, you know, waiting. He like pulls the spirit out of the trap. And it's that great moment where the spirit's like, wait, Batman, you don't exist. And ba- Batman is clearly just sort of rolling his eyes under the mask. She's not that into you. <laughs> Someday we will, pro- we will wind up covering First Wave, which was a DC imprint that brought the spirit, Doc Savage, and Batman into one world. The initial miniseries was written by Brian Azzarello, and I believe it was, I can't remember, J.G. Jones, the cover, who did the internals? Rags Morales. And it's a lot more grounded than this. It's a lot dark pulp versus this sort of wild pulp. And I honestly enjoy this more than I enjoyed that first wave miniseries. Uh, I also partially, I think, because as I recall, I think you've got a gun-toting Batman in there where Batman is pretty much more or less taking the, the spot of the shadow 
because DC didn't have the rights for the shadow. We've had Batman's shadow. Have, have we ever had the spirit shadow? We might have. Oh, wait, I think both of them were licensed by idw not idw by dynamite at the same time i don't remember reading it we have had grendel the shadow someday we will do batman grendel and i will give my whole treatise on how the hunter rose grendel matt wagner's grendel is the ultimate cracked mirror opposite number of batman far more than any character that was actively created to be an opposite number of batman like prometheus or owl man or the wrath or bane but that is for when we do batman grendel which i would love to do sometime in the not too distant future and maybe just maybe just grendel for those bonus episodes yeah oh have you read grendel i have not read grendel oh we have to do the the, the hunter rose stuff especially it gets wild because grendel is this sort of generational epic that starts out as a a noir and winds up becoming epic science fiction horror by the end when it sets it you know moves into the far far future again it's one of these things where it's like this one creator just takes this and just goes crazy with it oh what's that uh, what's that any comic i'm trying to think of written by that guy who has since gone crazy and oh, misogynistic cerberus or Cer- yeah, cerebus yeah. cerebus the aardvark dave sim yeah yeah but matt wagner hadn't got hasn't gone over that deep end so you can still enjoy never, that wagon go dave sam people never go dave sam no do not so i think we're probably good as we are really stretching at this point and very pretty comic if you get the chance definitely worth checking out but there's not again a whole ton to it and the end is cute but this is a as you know, Will said, a very pretty trifle. It will pass as a fart in the night, but <laughs> won't stain your bed sheets or something. Something like that. Or maybe it'll stain and it'll be pretty to look at. I don't know. But that awkward bit aside, that means it's time to put Batman the spirit on the big board. This is middle of the list. This is still well into good territory, but is not in great territory. Mm, that feels like thrill killer country yeah i was looking a little below that i was looking somewhere in the 40s maybe so how does 45 sound to you 45 is currently that one issue of uh, batman the brave and the bold homewreckers life on mars again a trifle but not as pretty nowhere near as pretty yeah that would put it uh, that would put it above doomsday book above and i'm just picking and choosing here above untold legend of batman above batman year three on the outside going even lower into the 50s yeah but puts it right below half an evil which you know redefines two-face puts it right behind where were you the night batman was killed which was just bonkers fun that is a decent place for this book to live Absolutely. And as always, if we're going to mention half and evil, I have to say, Harvey, again, smash and grab, bud. Smash and grab. That's all you got to do. You don't have to have this elaborate plot to get the pirate ship into the cove. Just go in there and just smash the pillars, grab the gold. Yeah, well, Harvey, Harvey will learn. Modern Harvey has learned that lesson. So that makes this our new number 45. Now to spend the next hour and a half talking our final story. 
Oh, yes. Which, again, we are reaching the same area that we have been in with a few stories recently where this is a story that has Batman, but is not expressly a Batman story. This is New Frontier. This is DC The New Frontier, numbers one through six, written and drawn by Darwin Cook, with colors by Dave Stewart, letters by Jared K. Fletcher, and edited by Mark Chiarello and Valerie Diorazio. Cover dates of March to November of 2004. Witness the dawn of the Silver Age of Heroes, told with the context of the times in an elaborate and sweeping epic. Epic is the right word here. Yeah. This is one of my all-time favorite comics. I own this in the original singles. I'm pretty sure I own the trades too, but I definitely own the, uh, the absolute because the absolute had a ton of special features and the blowing up of Darwin Cook's art on those absolute pages lets you really pour over the details and boy friggin howdy are there details in this book. This comic, no offense to you, Will, no offense at all intended. I would guarantee, unless you had some of those annotations, there was a ton of tiny little cameos in here that you did not pick out. Oh, I 100% believe it. That this was designed for guys like me who have entrenched themselves in the history and the minutia of the DC universe. And I just like, oh, wow, that's Roy Raymond, TV detective. That's Nathaniel Adam, who's going to become Captain Adam. That's Niles Calder, the chief of the Doom Patrol. That's Viking Prince, one of the characters from the old Showcase comics. You want to hear the you want to hear the level that I'm operating on, Matt? So we get a lot about John Jones here, right? You know, he yeah, he starts out as a police detective, uh, and then he kind of comes out to to the people there on, on earth. And I'm like, Martian manhunter, manhunter because he was a cop. Oh shit. Yeah. So that, that's, that's kind of, that's what you're working with here. But, but he, I mean, he's teaming up with slam Bradley who we, we know and love from Darwin cooks, you know, the work he did with Brubaker and this, what, what a great origin story for Martian manhunter. I mean, oh. this is, that was fucking perfect. How he comes to earth. That is his origin from the comic the stuff in gotham he wasn't a gotham cop in the original stories but it works so well here but studying like movies and and trying to pattern himself after you know cops and everybody in the station house looking at him like you're a fucking corny ass weirdo but you're a good cop sure the sequence of him watching television and morphing into groucho marx and bugs bunny and the native american and it's Oh, that Bugs Bunny was so fucking good. Oh, it's it's classic. I'm not an artist, but you can see when something is just not quite right. You're like, oh, that's a that's a good enough attempt at you know Bugs Bunny, right? That's 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 a good enough job. This was spot on. I just again, amazing artwork. And I said, there's not a ton of Batman in this story. There's more than enough to make it make this list. But the central characters in this book are John Jones, Hal Jordan, and Barry Allen, which makes sense as they were the foundational characters of the Silver Age of DC. John was the first 
major new Justice League character introduced. Barry was the first new legacy hero of the Silver Age. And Hal was sort of next. And Hal Jordan is a test pilot. Hal Jordan was what the real life superheroes of the late 50s and early 60s were. Listen, I don't like Hal Jordan as a character in general. I think he's usually sort of a pompous ass. But this is the closest I've ever come to liking Hal Jordan. Hal Jordan, you're Damian Wayne. Cook spends so much time getting you into Hal Jordan's head and making you understand why he is the way he is. You see all of his setbacks, all of his struggles. And the one thing I would have liked the moment where he got the ring to have been a little stronger, a little more like on the page and not just like, oh, well, you know, I got signaled and drawn out, you know, whatever. But the idea after you've read all of this stuff and, you know, all of his, like I said, all of his setbacks, the first thing he does when he gets the rig is he tries to go into space. Yes. And I'm like, that was just such, that was such an earned moment. Like that was, that was one of the things that kind of like, I had this swell of emotion. Like, God damn. Oh, wow. Like, yeah, I could see this Hal Jordan. He gets the ring and he's like, I'm fucking finally going to do it, man. I'm going to, I'm going to fly up there. I'm going to see what's going on. And that was so good. When Hal reconciles with uh, Flag. Yes. Oh my God. That was, that was a punch in the gut. Oh yeah. And there's less Barry Allen than there is of either Jean or Hal, but Barry is the earnest everyman here. Barry is how Barry Allen should be written. Barry Allen is a hero because that's who Barry Allen is. He's a guy who just wants to do right. He's kind of a square, but he's a lovable square. But he's not somebody that's going to be pushed around either. You know, he, his big moment is when he says, I've been working real hard for this city. I've been trying to do good and I got feds trying to come and capture me what the fuck is that bullshit and jean cook absolutely hits jean jones as stranger in a strange land and it's just so touching as you see jean struggle nearly give up and then reach this sort of initially strained and then real friendship with King Faraday, one of DC's legendary spy characters. And they develop this weird friendship that is great on page. And just watching Jean evolve and sort of claim his Martianness, while not completely claiming it because he still appears as, you know, we see Martian Manhunter and not necessarily in his native Martian form. He makes a choice to be out there. And I love Jean's arc. Jean is one of my favorite characters. I think he's a vastly underrated character that people are like, oh, he's just green Superman. Don't understand the the level of pathos that you can get out of a good Martian Manhunter story. We're going to go through all sorts of stuff in this book. But we should probably talk about, since we're talking about Jean, the scene where Batman confronts him in his apartment. Oh, it's such a great scene. John comes home and Batman is there and, you know, tells him that I need you to start investigating this. And by the way, I think you can be trusted, 
but it, to, to fight the one in Metropolis, it cost me $78,000 to get a splinter of meteorite. For you, all I need is a penny for a book of matches. And it's such a Batman line. It's such a Batman line. But that is Batman keeping up, you know, public appearances. Because, uh, yeah. you know, you, you get that later in the book. He's talking to, to Superman's like, yeah, yeah, that was you took a dive. The the reasoning there wasn't entirely unclear. I think it was supposed to just get heat off of Batman or get Batman to be left alone to in Gotham. We will eventually, when we do our second Darwin Cook episode, we will cover the New Frontier one shot, which was a special that filled in some of the gaps. And the main story in there is that story. Mm-hmm. Very good. Very good. At least there's a fairly good reason outside of the, the historical context for there not being much Batman in this story because the the key antagonist here is basically Lovecraftian Independence Day, more or less. Yes, the center, quote unquote. And Batman's not going to be much help against that. No offense, Batman. No, no. This this winds up being beaten by crazy science, which makes a lot of sense because that's what the 50s were about, the 50s and the 60s. That was science fiction writ large and the growth of technology and the space race. And as you said, this sets these stories in the times they were published. You see Barry Allen get his powers in 1956, and that is when showcase number four the first appearance of Barry Allen was released and cook is very careful to stick roughly to historical relevance here. We deal with McCarthyism with the JSA retiring, which is something we talked about. We see Ted Grant wildcat boxing Cassius clay, which is a great, wow. Does cook draw the hell out of a a boxing match? But When it comes to Sign of the Times stuff, the sequence with John Henry is, oh my God, I can never read those pages without getting goose flesh. And and not just that scene specifically, but the Edward R. Murrow-esque readout of that, the newscast. Yes, the big picture. Yeah, this is not uh, some foreign land. This is not communism. This is this is America, uh, which you know ties into our our opening. I will quibble with one minor minor detail, and this is where you screw up when you actually write the newsprint. When you write the story, Cook refers somewhere in there to a small town in Tennessee. Knoxville, my friend, is not a small town. It's a college town. It's, it's not backwater. It's the kind of thing where you might have, uh, you know, uh, night riders. But again, it's a, it's a real city in Tennessee in as much as Tennessee can have cities. Because fuck Tennessee. Roll Tide. Anyway, Roll tide. that was one quibble I had with that. But other than that, your yeah. point absolutely stands. And I will, uh, you know, somewhat of a, a trigger warning here for those out there. The end of that John Henry sequence, which is utterly chilling, has one of the most appropriate and unfortunately earned uses of a racial slur I have ever read in comics. Oh, boy. Yeah, that was um, that was wow. That was that was some kind of scene. Yeah. Um, 
also fun note, there's a scene after that big picture where you see uh, Jean and Slam Bradley in a bar in Gotham talking. And it's Jimmy's Bar and Grill named after, I believe, uh, Cook's friend and other comic creator, Jimmy Palmiotti, who I know Cook and Palmiotti were very good friends. So I've imagined that that Jimmy's was named after Palmiotti. And there is a forward in the deluxe edition from Amanda Connor. So that would make sense. Another character who is a standout in here is Wonder Woman. One thing, Cook draws a Wonder Woman who looks like she could take Superman. This isn't supermodel, skinny, wasp-waisted Wonder Woman. This Wonder Woman is big. She's not unfeminine. She's still very feminine, but she is strong. She is a presence. Point of order with Wonder Woman. Why is she from Paradise Island here and not the mascara i can't remember when they started they started using those two phrases interchangeably i believe back in the golden and silver age it was paradise island they started calling it themiscira at some point or another and i don't remember exactly when that was but i know in the silver age yeah it, it became themiscira in the modern age when mm. in post-crisis because paradise island which is what it was called before that seemed a little Male gazy? Yeah, a little bit. While uh, Themyscira was the capital of the Amazons in Greek mythology, so they just started using the actual name post-crisis. Smart. Yes. A little shout out to the man who would have done that, which was the was George Perez, another creator who is someone we should all keep in our thoughts right now. Because let's just bring Absolutely. this one down a little harder. <laughs> oh my uh, god. I mean, we also, I mean, we spend a lot of time with the challengers of the unknown in this book, which are not a group of characters you get a ton of in modern comics, but we see them here. And again, they're very 50s. Oh, and speaking of Wonder, sorry, going back for a second to Wonder Woman, the scene where Wonder Woman, after leaving Paradise Island, comes back to warn of the center and she's bleeding and her blood is what is making her invisible jet in the cockpit visible. What a friggin' visual. Uh, yeah. What a, like, you sit back, like, what could have been going on in Cook's head to come up with that as an idea? And it's, it's disturbing, but it's excellent. And then your mind is thinking, because we, we get what happened in basically a flashback, and you're thinking as you look at that, what the fuck happened to Wonder Woman? Jesus. Uh-huh. Another character when it comes to their art, the art of them, Robin only appears in one scene, really, but Robin is in constant motion. Robin is a kid in those panels. He's constantly, he's somersaulting, he's flipping, he's moving, he's looking. You know, he's not standing there patiently next to Batman. He's always going. And my favorite absolute favorite random nod to something or someone in this book is when Lois Lane is brought to Challengers Mountain, the headquarters of the Challengers of the Unknown. They're talking and I can't remember, I didn't write down which of the Chals, the Challengers is telling her about it, but he says that the mountain was designed, quote, by a reclusive genius named Kurtzberg. 
the challenge of the unknown were co-created by the, you know, we've already talked about Will Eisner, possibly the other greatest genius of early comics. One Jacob Kurtzberg, better known as Jack Kirby. <laughs> so that was a, a little nod to Kirby in this book. What a treat. And, you know, I do not believe that Cook ever did any new gods, but boy, howdy, I wish he had. This book has so many great emotional punches. The death of Karen Grace and Rick Flagg and what goes through Flagg's head in those last moments. The last issue is mostly an, a, a big old battle scene. But Cook just, you, know, you with the narration, Hal Jordan's narration, Jean's narration, Barry's narration, it keeps it grounded in the character while still drawing these psychedelic scenes as... Speaking the, of Kirby. Yeah. Yeah, as they go inside the center or Barry is running on the surface of it. A lesser creator would have, it wouldn't have felt as grounded as it does. And it feels that grounded because you're still with these characters in this book. These characters that you come to love over these five issues. And these, these individual issues were oversized, right? Yeah, double sized. They were 64 pages, no ads. Yeah, because you, you you're talking about the issues, and I you know I read the trade, and I'm like, this was like 400 something pages. Like, I just want to make sure that like we're we're talking about the same book. Yeah, no, um, it, but it was so much content. 384 pages of story and art without any back matter or introductions or covers or things, and none of it felt like filler. Like no. none of it was. I mean, you're reading through it and you're like how does this tie in like why does this matter but it all just tells you know, you you said it best in the opening this is an epic story you know the sort of thing that if dc had gone through with 5g this would be the kind of thing i would want for each one of those generations like a big mini series that lays out the entire groundwork introduces you to these characters sets the playing field gives them a challenge brings them all together and then gets you a status quo moving forward. Absolutely. I mean, we could, I, you know, you, you said it half jokingly, but we could go on for hours about all the little things and all the, the character beats and all the character arcs. And there are just so many cool little moments. At that uh, Wildcat Cassius Clay bout, you see Selena Kyle and Dinah Drake Catwoman and Black Canary sitting there talking because they were two of Wildcat's, you know, students. And it made me realize, boy, we really need Catwoman and Black Canary to do stuff together in the main DCU. I'd love to see that. I think they would have a great dynamic. There is a sequence that describes the origins and history of the center that is done in the style of a children's book from a thinly veiled Dr. Seuss analog. Theodore Smizel. Yeah, yeah, Ted Smizel. But that sequence, Cook is a master of altering his style just enough 
that it fits what he's doing while it's still recognizably cook. There's a a whole thing with Adam Strange being locked up in Arkham because people think he's crazy because he talks about going into space. And his doctor is, you know, a Matt favorite, Leslie Tompkins. And the very end, the final chapter. Now, I've seen this, this trope used in other comics where there's a real life speech and they're using, you know, comic book art, using that speech as narration or caption boxes and art going with it every other time it feels forced and it feels kind of lame here jfk's new frontier speech laying out so much of you know what the silver age is and what is to come it works it just works and cook just gets to do you know all these panels of different characters and heroes and things and it's just so cool some of the art in that last chapter is great. Like I think it was some of the promotional material for rebirth of all the heroes together. And they're all basically, you know, racing into, into something. And I was like, totally cribbed from that. I mean, we've said it for all the others, but just cook. The art here is just amazing. We didn't know Superman. Superman here is struggling with being the the government man he's the guy who signed the loyalty oath he's the guy who's trying to fix the system from within and he struggles with it and in the end he has to become the leader of men and it's great and lois lane is as brassy as ever you know jimmy also you first meet jimmy this takes place over the course of a number of years and you see, you know, Jimmy is the uh, the kid faked a press pass and uh, snuck his way in to be Lois Lane's photographer when he was underage. And by the end, he's a young man. And it's much more subtle than the, the longer arcs that you get with some of the other characters. But if you watch Jimmy Olsen evolve over the course of the series, it's stunning. There's a, a couple panels with a faux Gorilla Grodd that just made me happy to see Darwin Cook drawing Gorilla Grodd. And wow, I've, we didn't even talk about it. The opening sequence of this, the, the cold open, so to speak, is DC's military heroes, World War II military heroes, the losers on Dinosaur Island in the war that time forgot. The thing that we will learn about later is the center. That is a friggin' sequence. It's like, that is how you start a comic. And it's something that seems so superfluous at the beginning it's like oh it's you know soldiers versus dinosaurs isn't that neat but then you get to the end and it's like oh that was important that was very important not even by the end by the middle you realize how important it was and how it treats hal jordan's pacifism and his ptsd how it treats wonder woman's maybe not pacifism but her desire for peace and how that stands against the, the military industrial complex that is rising in America. And of course it mentions operation paperclip without making it a big deal. Like some idiot authors out there, you get a cameo by Nixon who you just want to punch in the head and you kind of wish wonder woman had. She wanted to. Oh, did she ever? And we all wanted her to. And there was this, that kind of uh sadder beat with Eisenhower. 
Yes. Soldiers, they just fade away. There's a cameo by an actual, you know, you said, as I said, it was a Murrow sort of analog, but you get actual Walter Cronkite in there. Plenty of talk of McCarthy. We said Cassius Clay. A Chuck Yeager has a, a, a cameo at the beginning with young Hal Jordan. Oh, man, that was that was a good like you can't even remember all the good moments from this book because there's I mean, so many. Yeah, I mean, there's the the final issue has this moment where every all these pilots, and these heroes are walking out to prepare to face to fight the center. And it is absolutely homaging the right stuff. And oh, it's so good. At the end of issue five, you have the, you know, the all is lost moment where they think the center has killed Superman. And in the end, you know, he, he falls into the ocean. And the, one of the final moments before that last chapter in the speech is this submarine coming up and Aquaman steps out with Superman and he's, this man has been asking for a woman named Lois. And it's so good. It's such a good moment. I got this, uh, this friggin' guy here. I think he's one of yours. And you, get, him, you, get him out of my ocean. <laughs> exactly. The polluters. And you get a moment at the beginning of issue six with various magical heroes that explains why they aren't stepping in. Yeah, it's, it's probably not needed, but it's a neat moment. And it sets that theme that this is the Silver Age. This is the 50s and 60s. This is a time of science. They, they bring the atom in at the very end for a clutch pinch hit to, you know, help destroy the center. That's a, that was a neat little moment, too. We barely touched on the King Faraday, Jean Jones stuff, but we could sit and talk about that for ages. Yeah, this is a masterpiece. Absolutely. The, the best sort of epic storytelling you could hope for uh, with a comic book. Just gripping and cohesive and engaging and again beautiful so i think it means it means it's time to put dc the new frontier on the big board the only reason this isn't a top five book is because it's not that much of a batman story yep it's 100 a hackatia problem yeah. um so i'd say that's our floor here we cannot go any lower than Haikatia at 19. Right. And I think it beats the next five or six easily still. Mask is tough. Mask is, yeah. Mask is where I, I, I bump up against mask and I'm like, the stuff above mask is mostly really primal Batman. Mm-hmm. And that's where it's like, okay, I might be able to get it to go above mask, but I don't think I can get it to go above Arkham Asylum because Arkham Asylum is a foundational text. Arkham Asylum is one of those books that you would give if you were teaching Batman 101, pretty much everything Arkham Asylum and above is Batman 101. The question is, does it beat mask or not? Because it, as much as I like Crimson Mist, this beats Crimson Mist. Oh, yes. Uh, for what we so- said about Red Rain earlier, like Crimson Mist is unquestionably just zany, gonzo, just craziness. To me, Mask reads as a fundamental text. So I 
I would it would hurt me deeply if we put it above mask, but I'm not going to fight you if you no, think it should be above mask. I think I think I, I'm happy with that as as the spot. All right, that makes well, it new number fourteen. Yeah, that is two top fifteen entries in one episode. And again, if we were just ranking the best comics on this list, that would be two top five entries in oh, this. Oh man, one. If we episode. just had to if if we if we tore this up and just started with the best comics. Oof, it'd be tough. Yeah. Because some of the stuff that we've got ranked lower because it's not that much of a Batman comic would shoot up this list. This was a good night. It was a good night. Let's uh, thank Sam Hopper again for asking us to do Batman Ego because what a good dude. Yep. But so that that is it for this week. Next week to tie in with the launch of her new miniseries. We're looking at three stories starring the goddess of the green, Poison Ivy. Ooh. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, the conduit of outdated joke names. That's a mouthful, June. Joshua Wheel, Abigail Hartbaum, mm. Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, Kyle Still, and Christian Smith for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music slash Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin, and I'm also out of here. Good night, Miami. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark. <laughs>